You're listening to the PFWC podcast with me, Carly Compton, a podcast created to help you learn strategies to overcome that bully inside your head, ways to practice self-love, awareness and understanding of eating disorders, how to embrace the body you have been given and develop a healthy relationship with food, exercise, and most importantly, yourself. Here at the PFWC podcast, we find it important to create a safe space and a place for individuals to come to learn how to create that lifestyle that works for them. We're dropping comparisons, fighting unrealistic beauty standards, and coming together to show the world that all bodies are beautiful and that healthy looks different on everyone. Sit back, relax, and get ready to grow together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the PFWC podcast. I am so excited for today's episode. I'm literally in my chair in my office, like so giddy. I have butterflies. I'm nervous. I'm excited. So many emotions today because I have the amazing Iskra Lawrence here on my podcast, which is so crazy to me because Iskra is someone who I've looked up to for so long. We'll talk about this in today's episode, but she really was a huge motivator for me when it came to modeling, when it came to accepting my body, when it came to all of these really important things that I feel like now I get to help people discover and learn. So it's kind of a full circle moment here, um, having Iskra on the podcast. So Iskra, welcome. I'm so excited to have you. I'm so happy to be here. So happy to be connected with you. This is the whole reason why I wanted to do this, you know, so that like you got kind of inspired and now you are passing it on and inspiring so many people. So really happy to be here. I love that. And I'm so excited to have such amazing and beautiful conversation with you today. Um, So before we really get into the nitty gritty of everything, do you mind just sharing with um, our, my community, our community here um, a little bit about who you are? Yes. I don't know. As a British person, this is something I do struggle with, but I will give it my best shot. (laughs) I am from England, from a tiny town called Kidderminster. I compare it to like the Ohio of America, just kind of in the middle. People drive past it, you know, like one of those places. Wait, I have to interrupt you because I'm from Ohio. (laughs) There you go. I was raised in Ohio. And I always compare, I always tell people, I'm like, it's one of those states that you kind of just like drive through or fly over. You don't really stop because there's not a lot happening. (laughs) That that is me. Okay. So you already get what I'm talking about, you know? So um, for me, very early on, I knew I had like an obsession with dressing up and fashion and just kind of performing. And, you know, I was a big sucker for American as next top model and all those shows. And, you know, when I could afford to, I wanted to get the fashion magazines. And when I was 12 and a half, um, L girls used to run a supermodel search. And so I was 12 and a half. And I was like, if I take photos now, um, by the time that it opens, I'll be 13, I can apply. So I was always very, very like determined and I had like super ambitious. So my mom helped me take these looking back ridiculous photos of me up against my closet with with a fan in my face but at that point you know I was 12 and a half I was actually a, a swam for the UK so I was you know obviously very slim um and I was five foot nine I feel like I had this crazy growth spurt like 11 12 so I was already five foot nine 
tall, freckly at that time. Like my hair was not dyed blonde. It was more like my hair is naturally more like strawberry. So in some lights it could look like reddish. Mm-hmm. So anywho, I was like more of that like typical fashion modely look. So I applied for this uh, competition, went there, shot in London. It was wild, got into the finals, did not win, but I got scouted by like Sarah Dukas who scouted um, Kate Moss. So it was a huge deal. And they put me on this top London agency's books and I was on their like models to watch because I was still too young. Mm -hmm. So from the age of 13 to 15, I would go down to London. I do test shoots and I would do like small runways. And um, it just became very apparent very quick that I was hitting puberty and my body was filling out and my curves were coming in and the other models were able to stay slimmer than me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what happened was I started to not fit the sample size clothes. And I remember being body shamed um, around the age of like 14, 15 backstage at a show where I literally couldn't get the dresses on. Mm -hmm. And I was just hiding in the corner, so scared that someone was gonna see. And sure enough, a stylist saw and they were like, what's wrong? And I said, well, the clothes don't fit. And then he was like, oh, what are we gonna do? You don't fit the clothes. Like, why is this fat model here? And I was like, whoa, this is terrifying. I was like, someone just like swallow me into, like, I just wanted to disappear. Mm -hmm. So I walked that show in three coats and afterwards my, family was like why were you the only person on the runway wearing coats and you know it just was not glamorous it was not and from that day forwards I in my mind felt that if I wanted to be a successful model I would have to change my body and change my size bearing in mind I was again this is in the UK but the equivalent so I'm a UK six to eight Mm -hmm. which is the equivalent of two to four in the US Mm -hmm. I'm tiny Yeah, like, and so what started to develop was I had that narrative in my head that I was too big and that turned into body dysmorphia. So I started Mm -hmm. looking in the mirror and just thinking like, how can I pull my flesh away? Like, what can I do? Um, More and more obsessed with only wearing black clothes, only wearing flattering clothes. So I know this is meant to be the story of how I came to be, but I'm trying to give you some backstory. So yeah, no, it's great. Because basically I got dropped from my agency because I didn't fit in the sample size. I, they gave me a list of 11 more to go and see and every single one rejected me. And it just reconfirmed everything that I felt. I was like, okay, I'm not good enough. My body's not good enough. It's too big. I'm too fat. I'm disgusting. I need to change it. So I went on a very dangerous downward spiral of eating disorder and body dysmorphia. And that was most of my teen years. Um, and it was closeted. Some of my close friends, you know, we would do the diets together, but I don't think my family knew. And I remember now and again, they would be like, whoa, you're looking really skinny. But then because it was unhealthy, I would then binge and then I'd maybe put on weight. And the whole thing was very unhealthy. And after the end of the podcast, we can do some needed helplines. But um, so what happened was I, I just became really unhappy with myself, with how I was feeling. And I knew that that wasn't how it needed to be. I knew that it was impacting my swimming, which I ended up quitting because Mm -hmm. I just didn't have the focus for it. My heart wasn't there anymore. And I just saw other people being confident. And so I just knew that there was another way to live. And I remember being um, 
and my modeling career was just terrible, right? I was doing the crappy jobs that no one wanted to do. I was doing the um, dressing up costumes. They're still all online, by the way, which is hysterical, like me in a chef's hat. I got painted green once and I was Fiona from Shrek. Like I was just doing, I was flyering, whatever I could do. Mm -hmm. And I got screwed over by agencies. I lived in Turkey for a while and never got paid. And like, I was just doing everything I could to try and make it. Mm -hmm. it was just the constant message of like, you're never going to make it. You're never going to be good enough. Da, da, da. And I remember one day being at a college fashion show that I was doing and a model said to me, have you ever heard of plus size modeling? I was like, what's plus size modeling? I'm about 16, 17 at the time. And she goes, yeah, in America, they have plus size models. I was like, wait, what? And bear in mind, social media is not around yet. So, and America's Next Top Model did not showcase this until we got to that season with, why is it disappearing from my mind? You know exactly who I mean. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm literally seeing her. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay, anyone, <laughs> anyone who's listening to this is going to be like, it's there. (laughs) Anywho. So after seeing that, I was like, oh my goodness, maybe there is another way. So I find, bearing in mind, there's barely any in England. There's like two agencies that have like a plus size division. And there was one that was specifically for plus size models. And I went there and then they all said I was too small Mm because at this point I'm like, you know, a U.S., six to eight still, I'm still small, but I'm not small enough for the sample size, but I'm still too small for plus size. So I started cold calling clients and figuring out how I could just get directly to brands and say, hey, I could be the girl in the middle. If you have a sample size and you have maybe a plus size or maybe you don't, yeah, I could be just another body option. So I really focused on swimwear companies and lingerie companies because there's multiple different cup sizes. And I was about a double D, like a really small bat, like a 30 or 32. So I was like, you've got your B cup, you've got your double D, I could be your double D, and then you can have like a GH cup. So that's really where I found my niche. I did a lot of work with lingerie brands. And as I just kind of like built my own little portfolio, I went back to one of those plus size agencies and I said to them, I will give you these clients that I've got and I earn money from. I'll give you 20%. Please just sign me. Mm -hmm. So I got signed. um, And when I was in the door, I started just explaining like that client might not book someone my size yet, but why not put me forward? Why not? Mm -hmm. And so we, we really just pushed and pushed. And I did a lot of photo shoots, constantly did photo shoots. And I guess It got to the point where I knew that there was a ceiling in the UK. There wasn't many brands that were open-minded to using someone my size. And there was just a lot of lacking of like, just, I had a big dream. No one believed me. And so I remember saying to the agency, can you just submit my my book to um, a New York agent? And they said, absolutely not. You've been ridiculous. I asked them twice and they laughed at me both times. They were like, you'll never make it. Um, There's no industry for your size, da, 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 da. So I went, to models one who just opened up a plus size division and they were trying to find girls. And I was like, I know you're gonna say I'm too small, but listen up, I've managed to get all these clients just off my own back. Yes, I'm with an agency, but they don't believe that I can do much more. But if I'm with models one, you have the backing for it. So mm-hmm. it was a new agent, she was super hungry. She was really trying to revolutionize the space. She was a curvier woman herself. So she like 
she got it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I signed with them. And then about six months later, because again, they're a big established agency, the New York agents would come over to visit Models One and the other top agents and scout. So that's when I found out JAG were coming. And JAG Models to me was like the dream agency to be with because not only did they have iconic plus size models, they did seem to have models that were a little bit smaller in size. And I really felt like that could be a good fit. Plus two of their girls are just featured in an airy campaign. Mm-hmm. And when I'd seen the, the first ever area campaign that had been run retouched, I was like, this is everything that I'd ever wanted to be part of. So I, I'll try and speed it up. No, no rush. <laughs> so I sign with JAG and within like uh, weeks, they were like, do you want to come over and see what it's like in New York? I was like, Absolutely. Sign me up dumped my boyfriend in London (laughs) he was actually he was wonderful he was actually just like you need to spread your wings like go Mm -hmm. for it so moved to New York did six weeks and the energy I went with my friend Jada um we had the best time oh my goodness New York is a lot of fun when you're 23 and yeah I just knew that that's where I needed to be because any any of these crazy big dreams I had where it's like I think that we need to stop retouching images and I want to talk about that as a model and people in England were like you can't say that like that's just what it is and how it's done but Jag were like yeah maybe we can discuss that with brands and I was like okay this is great got someone who believes in me finally so um I went back to England was like I need to get my visa got my visa sorted moved to New York two two months after that maybe and like I've never left America yeah (laughs) (laughs) and within six months of moving to New York I had my first airy casting and like it was just that was obviously the the biggest break for me Mm -hmm. still unreal that it happened to be honest um and yeah I worked with airy we challenged essentially a whole industry by saying like you do not need to retouch retouching is actually very damaging for body image Mm -hmm. we're just showing the real we're showing people people being comfortable in their own skin. Um, Let's change how we advertise. Let's be more aware and conscious. So I did a lot, a lot of work with them for seven years, Um, which again, I'm really grateful because models typically, they get used and then they want a new model because Mm -hmm. they just want to constantly show, you know, different people or different types of images. But me and Ari did more than just being in the photos. I was in their fit meetings, their marketing meetings. I influenced how they trained their staff. I got them all trained in the body project, which is through NIDA. Um, I had them change like aspects of the changing room. Like We just did a lot of work. And I guess from being such an integral part of that brand and knowing that it was more than just modeling, in my head, I was like, I want to have my own brands one day. Mm-hmm. Like, this is really my dream. Because obviously there was still limitations and there was still like us women who were like in the marketing side of things. But above that, there was a boardroom that was still filled with middle-aged white men mm-hmm. who would not sign off on size increasing, would not sign off on certain things that were really challenging and like really disheartening when you're trying to push for stuff. And then it was just like, it only gets here. And I was like, how do I get up there? And it's like, I have to start my own brands. So um, I started starting self-funding, which is my planner. And I started working on Solterre, which is my body care brand, because I knew that if 
I did the right thing and brought the right team around me. There, it, there was no limitations. Mm-hmm. People made excuses all the time about why they couldn't be size inclusive, about why they felt like this messaging was too, ugh. like there was just so, so much red tape still. So mm-hmm. I'm currently in a situation now where I'm transitioning, still love doing the modeling. It still is exciting, but I'm, I'm a little bit more picky about what I want to do and who I want to work with. I want to be at home with my baby. I had a toddler um, nearly two years ago now, which has gone very quick. And I'm working on my building my own brands and, you know, building them the right way from day one. So that's a bit of my story. I now live in Austin, Texas with my hubby, Philip, and I have a baby. So I'm sure we can get into the details in between the, the long winded story, but it's very hard to explain why I do what I do unless I feel like you hear that backstory because that section is 10 years of being rejected and 10 years of like figuring out, okay, how do I recover from this eating disorder? How do I still be a model even though I was told that I never would mm-hmm. at this size? So I don't know. I think that I hope that even if you're not interested in modeling or in this world, it's just a reminder that sometimes you're going to get no's and rejected for a very long ass time. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that it will never happen for you. You just have to bang down the door or create your own door or <laughs> jump over the fence or, you know, just figure out how to be, you know, smarter and more creative to get there. Yeah, 100%. And I think I... I'm so inspired by you for that reason, because, you know, I haven't heard your backstory before. This is the first time I've heard all of that, but it just makes it, it makes where you are now and what you've accomplished, like so much more inspiring and empowering to other people. Because like you said, you know, you experienced 10 years of being told, no, like this isn't your industry. This isn't what you're meant to be doing. You don't have the right look. Um, experiencing an eating disorder and feeling like you had to go to the extreme to meet that expectation that the modeling industry and society was setting for you and for so many of us. And you kind of pushed through that. You kind of gave a middle finger (laughs) and said, okay, fine. You don't want to accept me. Then I'm going to go out. I'm going to do a lot of this on my own. And I'm going to find people who do want to get on board and who do want to help me. And I think that is so inspiring for so many people, um, especially people who've been told no, or who have been told you don't have the right look, or you don't have the talent. Mm -hmm. Um, Just that reminder of you will find the people who are going to support you and who are going to believe in you. And that may take 10 years. <laughs> it may take five, it, you know, it may take 15 years, like mm-hmm. just continuing to stay true to what you're passionate about and staying true to who you are. And I think you're a really beautiful example of that um, for so many people. And, you know, the, the really where it all became possible was from social media because that gave me the, I want to say evidence, and that's a weird word to use, but essentially I was trying to prove to gatekeepers, the gatekeepers set a beauty ideal and that beauty ideal change, it does shift culturally. And I feel like it's shifting more now because we have access to seeing all the different types of beauty, Mm -hmm. but it was still very much set, you know, from that nineties waif thin model. And so I had to prove, because at the end of the day, 
sometimes we can forget what a model's job is, but a model wears or uses products for a brand, for the brand to help sell those products to consumers. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of the vehicle, you're the method for which many people advertise. So I know as a model, your greatest value in a way, which is really sad, is how much product you can sell. And so with the rise of social media, and this is before people really understood the influencer mm-hmm. kind of concept, I started doing Instagram, obviously just like everyone else, posting my meal, posting a cute dog, da da da, da. And uh, then I started posting my photos from shoots. And then I started kind of being very open about how I felt about myself in those photos. So it became more of this kind of visual diary. And then I I started talking about retouching and started posting unretouched pictures, which as a model, people had never seen that before. So basically I started getting this very wonderful community, as you know, community is everything, but this wonderful community that was passionate. And they basically, they were allowing me to have this evidence. They were saying, this is what we want to see. We do not want to be advertised highly photoshopped images of one beauty type. We want to see a diversity of different people who represent us. Mm -hmm. So I was essentially able to then show brands. I was like, hey, you do realize that this is what people want to see. People are more intelligent than you give them any kind of, you know, recognition for. They Mm -hmm. understand and I'm able to help them figure out that the way they've been feeling, you know, not good enough is often because of the messaging and because of the marketing that you all have been putting out. Mm-hmm. So let's work together <laughs> and try and change that. It's going to be better for your business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be better for the consumers and how they feel about themselves. So I really saw that it was like, I don't have to just be this model who goes to a casting. Cause that's what it is. I, especially in London, I just remember being in rooms of 50 girls and they would just look you up and down. And it was like, whoever they thought, was the prettiest or, or fit their brand the best. And that was it, that's all you had to offer. I was like, no, I'm the person in these images that are potentially impacting the way people feel about themselves. There's something deeper to this. So really showing brands that, hey, I can be more than just a model. We can do more than just post up pictures and have a campaign. We can really speak to people because we already are and we're not doing a good job of it. Generally, we're just thrusting a certain type of beauty ideal in people's faces and making them feel like they have to look like that. That's not the way it has to be. So it was really cool because I I feel like I just saw a different opportunity in this industry. And then quite quickly after, influencers started being valued and people started realizing influencers have this power. Um, and it was funny because for a long time, my agents hated when people booked me as an influencer. They were like, don't call her an influencer. She's a model. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, oh, stop being up your own asses. It's an amazing, wonderful thing that influencers have created a community. And that community want to hear what these influencers have to say. They want to see what they have to wear. They trust in their advice because it just feels like a friend. Mm-hmm. I'm like, they've built something really incredible. In my opinion, something much harder to do than having a certain set of measurements and showing up to a casting and booking a job. So um, for me, that's why I did transition slowly over because I felt like it's more empowering. I get to be my own producer, creative director, hair and makeup artist, you know, editor, and I get to do it from home. Um, And I love that creativity and that, that control and 
not having to be on set for 12 hours, freezing or uncomfortable, or maybe even working with people that, you know, I don't click with immediately. So um, I don't know where we started with this. <laughs> you can help me get back on my life. <laughs> right. It's the story of my life. I feel like as I'm always, yeah, in conversation, I'm like, what? What? What's the question? <laughs> That's why I'm like, if I had a podcast, would it actually make sense? <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get that. Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful thing to see where social media has come and is also marketing. Like a lot of brands have really come to understand that they have to, like, they really don't have any other choice but to show like diversity and representation because. I feel like as a society, we've gotten to that place now where if a brand isn't doing that, it's kind of like, I don't want to support them. I don't want to buy from them because they aren't valuing diversity and inclusivity and all of this stuff. So I think that is a really exciting thing to see. Um, And I'm sure for you, especially because you were kind of there at the beginning, trying to push for, for, for brands to do this. And now you're seeing this new wave of, like inclusivity and diversity with a lot of brands. Um, but we social media, yeah. sure, Yeah. And I think, yeah, with social media, it's like easier to, it's easier to see yourself represented in social media, um, which I think is what is so beautiful about it is that you can find those you know, five people who you really look up to, who you relate to. And those five people could be life-changing for an individual. And so I think that's where that biggest difference is between like traditional media, like traditional modeling stuff, and in going into the influencer social media realm is that it's so easy to find that community that you really relate to, that you feel comfortable in. Um, and I think that's what was so welcoming about your social media, which is kind of how I found you was when you started to grow your social media and you started to work with Ari. That was when I was first introduced to you. And I remember I was in my eating disorder and then starting into my recovery and seeing the message that you were putting out with Ari in terms of like saying no to retouching and just posting the real raw photos. It was life-changing for me in so many ways because I thought, oh my God, I can't show that. I can't show this stretch marker. I can't show this cellulite or I need to edit this out. People can't know that I have these things. And then when I started to see, you know, what you were doing with Aerie and all of these other brands, it was like, oh, okay, we all have this. We all struggle with this and this can be shown and it should be celebrated. And so I think that's such a beautiful aspect of it. But I'm curious, like, what was your experience or your journey with your eating disorder and into kind of your recovery? What did that process look like for you? So I'm someone who was never diagnosed in the sense that I never even knew I had an eating disorder, which is very common. And the fact that they say there's only 30 million people in the U.S. who have struggled with an eating disorder is that is just so far off. 30 million um, diagnosed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even 
aware, you know, like um, growing up, at least 50% of my friends I know at some point mm-hmm. had disordered eating. Um, so it went from, gosh, I mean, there was a lot. There was the abuse of exercise that was really intense for me as someone who was competitive and like, and kind of an athlete with the swimming, um, you know, running on the treadmill eight kilometers a day to make sure I was in calorie deficit. Um, sometimes like having blurred vision and passing out because I was in calorie deficit. Um, that took a, that was really hard for me to figure out. And obviously the first kind of choice or step I made in recovery was almost going the polar opposite, right? Like not moving at all and wanting, and just like not understanding or controlling my portion size and binging and just really that it's the pendulum swinging the whole complete way. And then looking at my body and it was changing so much and it was out of my control. And then, you know, so I feel like the first part of recovery is the hardest because you go from like feeling completely in control because it's your eating disorder that's just got full control of you to then being completely out of control and potentially swinging the polar opposite and maybe having a different type of an eating disorder. What was interesting was I didn't know until I was in recovery that every time my grandma um, would go to the bathroom after eating, Mm -hmm. that she was actually throwing up. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long she had bulimia for, but it was just like this unspoken, like a known thing that she did that and no one ever spoke about it and it was never diagnosed or treated. So it's it's very interesting to me because I don't know. So there is not enough research done. This is another major problem with eating disorders. The lack of funding and research is really hard to know if there is potentially genetic elements to it as well. But my recovery was essentially me realizing that I was wasting time because I was trying to starve myself and be in calorie deficit to achieve a certain body type. And I did it for enough years to know that it was never going to happen for me because of my bone structure and just my physical build. I was always more like pear shape, mm-hmm. hourglass, whatever you want to call it. But my hips and bum were always the reason why I didn't fit in the sample size. And they were always the last thing or place that I could lose weight. So being a logical person, I got to the point where I was like, I know this, this does not make me happy. This is not okay that it's just consuming everything. And it feels like it's my only, like I'm just a failure every single day because I'm not able to lose enough weight. So when I kind of heard about the plus size modeling, I was like, damn, did I just waste that many years trying to achieve something I was never going to? And is there even a a 1% chance of it being something different? I was like, I have to go with the 1% because I'm, this is just seriously wasting my time. I'm seriously unhappy. I know this isn't, this isn't healthy. So it began with that like slither of crack of daylight of hope. And then obviously, as soon as I got on social media and I heard about plus size models, I mean, even just seeing the images of Vogue Italia, oh my gosh, those images of like Tara Lynn and Candice and just my jaw dropped to the floor. I was like, these women are absolute goddesses. Mm-hmm. Like, why did I feel like I could only be confident at one certain size because that was the only beauty ideal. Clearly there's so many other ways to live and thrive in your body at any different size. Mm-hmm. So that really helped me. And I think that we obviously have greater access now because of social media, but you do, you have to just find 
others, images, messages that empower you. One of my biggest pieces of recovery was what the Louise Hay books, which are affirmation books. And I feel like she breaks it down really simply. And she just gives you like the manual of how to gift yourself kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and my main affirmation was always I'm enough. Mm-hmm. And so even though it felt silly at the beginning, even though I was still surrounded by a couple of people who were not also out of their eating disorders, I had to I ended up moving, actually. I, I lived with a girl who was not well either. And I remember moving out, moving into my own apartment. And I was like, okay, this is it. We have to figure this out. <laughs> it's now or never. Like, I'm getting older, which sounds ridiculous at the time, but I was 21. And to me, I was like, I'm getting older. Most agencies, model agencies, don't sign people over this age. I was like, okay, this is my time. Let's invest the time that I used to use into wanting to be skinny, into just wanting to be the most badass successful, happy, healthy, thriving person. So I actually figured out that you didn't have to only work out to burn calories. You can actually work out and do other things like build strength, build endurance, like get stronger, get more flexible. So I started doing different classes. I took boxing classes, you know, yoga. I started moving my body and being so happy that it was strong, not just skinny. And there was some people at the time, Katie Hillcox, for example, who did actually use the hashtag strong, not skinny, skinny, not wait, strong, not skinny. <laughs> healthy is the new strong. Let me get that right. Her hashtag was healthy is the new strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just a, a couple of things that just, again, I'm sure maybe some people remember, but it just takes one thing a day to help you on, in your recovery journey. One reminder, one post, one visual to remind you that this is the best decision you've ever made. Mm-hmm. And like, you're gonna be happier and you're gonna be healthier. And so that for me was like, take it day by day. Yeah. take it day by day. 100%. You know, it was like making sure when I looked in the fridge, there was things I wanted to eat and making sure that I like had set meal times and was like, I'm gonna eat this now and it's gonna be okay. And I'm going to sit and watch my show and like just making things like really basic and really super simple and not being afraid um, of calories. I mean, that was the biggest one, not being afraid of calories Mm -hmm. and getting over that hump, um, seeing people thriving in different size bodies. My inspiration, motivation was I know I deserve better and I know this industry could really needs a change. Mm -hmm. And so that was it. it was like a trio of those things essentially and that was like okay I feel really empowered in my decision to do this and then I was you know and like I said I pied ways and and took myself out of a relationship that I was in that was not healthy and not great and he definitely was manipulative and preyed on those insecurities that I had and even a couple of friendships you know and I surrounding myself with people weirdly they were a little bit older and more mature and kind of helped me figure out that there was just like more to life than just looking a certain way and throwing myself into you know experiencing life and being around different types of people and in valuing those experiences again just giving myself points of value and education ways to build my self-worth um and that's so that's why I would say it was key to my recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long-winded. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I totally agree in terms of you know taking it day by day. That was something that I had to really that's focus on when I was in my recovery too. And um also agree with 
I feel like for me and a lot of people that I work with, um, there is that fear of for so long, you've had this eating disorder for so long, you've, your goal is to be as small as possible. And the biggest fear for a lot of people in, in starting recovery is that weight gain is that seeing that change in your body. And one thing I find myself saying a lot is, you know, it's unfortunate that we live in a society where, you know, someone notices that someone has gained weight and their automatic thought is, oh, they let themselves go or, oh, they don't care about their health anymore. And the biggest thing that I found to be dedicated, no, that's terrible one as well. Like that, oh, they obviously just fell off the wagon. Yes. Yeah. And, and the best thing that I found to come like to combat that as like a comeback for that statement is no, I, I didn't let myself go. I literally like regained my life back. And I decided that like my mental health, my emotional health, all of these other pillars of health that aren't just dedicated to physical health are just as important as, you know, if not more important, honestly, than physical health. And so, yeah, you may look at me and think, oh, you let yourself go. But actually I like regained my life back. And I think that's something that can be really empowering for a lot of people is that idea that when you choose recovery, when you decide that you don't want your eating disorder to control you, you don't want food to control you. You don't want exercise to control you you gain so much in life that you never realized was there like passions and hobbies. And I feel like for me, my relationships got so much better and my friendships and there was just so much more value there because it wasn't this surface level conversation anymore regarding what diet I was on or how much weight I was trying to lose. It was real conversation about how are you doing? Like, how are you feeling? Um, and that to me, I think was so life-changing in my recovery and something I see a lot with clients that I work with who are in recovery. I think it's just that little glimmer of life outside of an eating disorder, that first little experience of it. You're like, I want this. I need it. It's like, I need all of this because this feels so good to be able to go out to dinner and to go do a workout that maybe you didn't allow yourself to do before because it didn't feel quote unquote enough, like a workout. Um, so I think that is such an amazing part of recovery and something I always find myself reminding people who have that fear, um, is sometimes, you know, like choosing to heal can feel really hard, but choosing not to heal is, even harder and remaining in that place of pretty much, you know, it is suffering. Like there is a lot of suffering and pain in that place. And so finding those people who are going to remind you, like you mentioned, those people who show you like, oh, I can do this and I can like love myself and accept my body for what it is. Um, I think is such an important aspect, which you have provided for so many people. And I hope that that's something you remind yourself of like on a regular basis. It can feel surreal sometimes. Um, cause I definitely, um, I feel like I chose every time cause I've, there's been many life scenarios that could have taken me in different directions. That's for mm-hmm. sure. 
I've always tried to choose the most, I, I don't like the word normal personally, uh, mm -hmm. but I've tried to choose the most grounded path every time. So yeah, I, I definitely don't, there are many days where I don't realize. And then I'll go somewhere like the other day, I'm getting frozen yogurt and someone's like, oh my gosh, this grief, that's the impact on my life. I'm like, oh shit, I did do that, didn't I? Or like, it's just, it is very surreal because I, I felt like I was just sharing my experience in the hopes that if one person didn't have to go through that, you know, or, or if they are, it helped them get through it quicker. Like that was, cause it is, it's, it's freedom. And I think one fear as well, which is a tricky one to put into words, but I think one fear of recovery is the loneliness mm -hmm. when you don't have the voice of your eating disorder. Yeah. Because that constant driver, um, it can be like a, you're like a, like a partner in the worst way because yeah. it gives you like in a way I did feel like I had a purpose every day to try and get skinnier like mm -hmm. that was so weirdly coming out of that trying to find a different purpose of what I could be like focused on or trying to achieve like that can be tricky sometimes and that's why sometimes falling back into it feels weirdly comforting and settling because that's what you have known and what you felt like you were good at or maybe you weren't but you just felt like it was just familiar to you so if any of you are in recovery like you might feel that temporarily but just like we talked about being free and getting to live without those constraints and just that voice just disappears and you can bring in new voices that are empowering and uplifting and just remind you that like you are so many different parts and the sum of you is not your size like it's so much more than that so mm -hmm. You know, I, if there is anyone listening to this, obviously it's hard sometimes, and I hope it's not triggering to hear any of this, but I hope you realize we need to talk about it. And mm -hmm. I wish I'd have been able to talk about it and or heard more people talking about it because it would have helped me sooner. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think uh, kind of going off the point that you made in terms of like that voice, like that, you, that comfort that a lot of people feel and knowing they have that. One thing that I found to be super helpful for me when I found myself in that place of like, what do I do without it? Like, who am I without it? Um, I started to think about like, I have my logical Carly voice in my head. And then I have my eating disorder voice in my head. They're two separate people pretty mm -hmm. much. And so I had to really remind myself that my eating disorder voice, like I created this character pretty much like it was narcissist it was a narcissist it was manipulative it didn't want anything good for me and kind of envisioning that voice as like an actual person like sometimes people find themselves in relationships with narcissists and it's hard to get out of it and you know you find yourself in abusive relationships that can be very similar like having that voice that friendships so yeah. I'm Am I drawn to that because of what I went through? Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great point for you to bring up because you do, you have to be aware. And if you are someone, you know, it, when you're recovered, it doesn't disappear. Mm -hmm. You have to learn to live with it and cope with it. And you have to potentially be aware of ways it might show up later in life especially mm -hmm. for someone for me who is a perfectionist and I do like control it's mm -hmm. interfered with relationships even though I felt recovered yeah in other ways so it's like like you said having that eating disorder that voice personified 
it could help you later in life if it starts showing up in other ways you being like wait no <laughs> what's going on here exactly 100 and I think that is a good point too in terms of like it for a lot of people there is that goal of will this voice go away um and unfortunately it is something that will be there for the rest of your life but the difference is the way in which you react to the voice how strong like my logical carly voice becomes that logical carly voice became more confident and louder and really found a way to kind of fight against the eating disorder voice which is through coping skills and all of these other techniques but yeah i think just reminding yourself that that voice really doesn't want anything good for you. And there are people out there who want to help you, who want to support you, who are there for you. I think when, especially when you're feeling that loneliness, it's like you can find people, organizations like like that really do want to help you um, and who want to see you succeed and your recovery. And I think remembering that you don't have to do it alone. Like there are so many people out there who want to be by your side through the, through your entire recovery, whether that's a therapist, a psychiatrist, a friend, like someone will be there to be able to. to And it's not impossible. You know, there are millions of people who have recovered. Yeah. Live every day, a really fulfilled free life. So Mm -hmm. remembering that too, I think is always just reassuring. Yeah. I know this is possible. I know there's another way to feel mm-hmm. when I look in the mirror or I see myself. I know there's a different way. I don't have to measure myself every single day or weigh myself every single day. Like there's so many ways that you can live life yeah. and it's just never too late either. It felt like that was such a huge chunk or period in my life. But now I'm like, I'm 31 and I, I feel really young still. And I just, mm-hmm. I am. And there's so many more things I want to do. And it's like, yeah, don't just, you have an abundance of time and yeah. you're doing great wherever you yeah. are. Yeah. And I think the reminder that recovery is not linear. It's different for everyone. You know, what my recovery may have looked like could be very different than what your recovery looked like. So finding ways in which recovery feels not good. Cause it's not, it, that's, it's not going to feel good. It's going to be hard, but I think finding the, the tools and the ways in which it feels like it's working for for you. Yeah, not comparing your journey to anyone else's because mm-hmm. you know there was a time on social media where there was a lot of triggering posts about like before and afters of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And that could be very hard actually for a lot of people because it felt like you had to have an extreme before and after to be able to be validated that you had an eating disorder. And clearly we know that that's just Mm-hmm. bananas and just counter you know counterproductive to having discussions about eating disorders so don't ever do that <laughs> don't ever compare yourself to anyone else or don't like you don't have to eating disorders still have one look you know when you think eating disorder you can visualize this frail white woman you know you can visualize what it and eating disorders do not look a certain way they mm-hmm. really do not um and so that's why it's really hard sometimes to even get diagnosed because you have an, a vision of what you need to look like or how thin you need to be to be considered like oh she definitely has an eating disorder mm-hmm. no all yeah. of that is super toxic just yeah. go online do the neatest free screening 
or just reach out, start following people who, you know, are ED recovery or, or have accounts that you feel safe kind of being part of and like, just know that there's no comparison. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I think that's that reminder of like eating disorders don't have a look is so important. Um, because at least for myself, there was never a point where I looked quote unquote, looked like I had an eating disorder. So no one assumed or knew. Um, and so then when I started my recovery and started gaining weight, maybe people still didn't know that I was in recovery or that I had an eating disorder. So that's where those thoughts of, oh, she just must've stopped working out or she must've right. stopped caring. Right. Um, and we see that with Tess Holiday, And when she shared that she was struggling with anorexia and people were responding in such terrible ways around, oh, there's no way you, you don't quote unquote look like you have it. It's like that messaging is so toxic and it is what keeps so many people from reaching out and getting help and really understanding that what they're doing is either disordered eating that could lead into an eating disorder, or it's already formed into an eating disorder. Um, And so I think just engaging in that conversation and educating yourself and really understanding that they don't have a look, they, you know, they literally don't discriminate. They affect people of all like race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation. Like that's a big thing too, is a lot of people assume that it's just women, but there's men who also experience eating disorders or it's just white women, but there's also black women who also experience eating disorders. So it's, just continually having those conversations and trying to educate yourself and educating others, I think is the goal there. Um, but it can be hard too. Cause like I'm finishing up my master's to be a therapist and I see a lot of stuff in like the diagnosis manual in terms of like anorexia, still using BMI as an indicator for a lot of diagnosis stuff. So it's like there there's still a lot of work to be done in that area too. And we, we see that in the medical field, of course, like there is a lot of weight stigma. There's a lot of fat phobia. There's a lot of stuff going on there within the medical field. So hopefully we'll continue to make strides forward in that area, but that's a lot. You bring up a very valid point. It's really hard when you're fighting the system that just is not recognizing or yeah, willing to mm-hmm. put the time and effort into to sorting out the, the root of the cause in the sense that people do not have access and they are not treated correctly, they're not diagnosed correctly. There is not enough funding to allow people to get consistent treatment. And when they do get treatment, they are often thrown out of treatment when they hit a certain goal or are seen to be eating meals for a week. And then clearly like the system, unfortunately is not, just like many other systems, it's not fair. Um, and I think that's why this education communicating is so important because hopefully friends and family can start to learn and understand better because that support could be more beneficial than even sometimes, you know, figuring out how treatment could work for you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm currently creating a, a, a curriculum for sixth through eighth grade, um, on eating disorders for, um, mandatory health class. And it's really interesting, like seeing not interesting. It's actually quite sad to see how young eating disorders are starting for a lot of people. Um, 
as young as like fourth grade, seeing signs of eating disorders, which is so terrifying. And a lot of it, of course, goes back to like what you mentioned, parents, and what are the conversations that are happening in the house? Like what, like all of that is just as important as the education surrounding what eating disorders look like and, and how to have discussions about them and, and all of that. So 100%. I mean, I, you know, my child is not even two yet, but me and Philip already talk about, or at least I, there is sometimes it's not that Philip doesn't understand, but obviously if he's never had an eating disorder, I have to communicate with him sometimes, Hey, this would have been triggering for me or Mm -hmm. what I've learned. Like, are you open to discussing this in a different way? Or like Mm -hmm. my mom, especially, um, love her to pieces were so so close but she was a huge uh part of my eating disorder um doing things that she didn't know were really enabling Mm -hmm. you know a lot of yeah you look thinner in this you should wear that a lot of have you weighed yourself today should you be eating that you know all that kind of very that language it's really hard and I hadn't communicated very well either up until I was about like 18 or 19 we had like a big heart to heart and I told her everything and how Mm -hmm. I was feeling and all the things and she was you know hysterically crying and in tears because she felt awful and didn't know how damaging it was and you know um so as a parent now I'm like hyper aware Mm -hmm. and I always sometimes have to be like am I too aware like am I thinking too much into this but like and like all the language around food mm-hmm. you know like very much it's so easy to fall into the make sure you've eaten everything on your plate or like you know I'm hearing my mom be like well Alfie you got to make sure you've eaten that if you you know so you can have dessert or you get to have dessert and just mm-hmm. constant language around like oh you're gonna have this treat for dessert it's like ah so <laughs> I'm trying to handle you know, helping, I think, my child with, you know, language that isn't going to be detrimental, mm-hmm. how he feels around food in his body, as well as being gentle with the other people around me who haven't maybe had my experience or haven't had the education experience I have to know how I feel about that either and not just like attacking them and being like, you're doing everything wrong, don't speak to my son, like, yeah. you're allowed to be around him when he's eating, you know, I don't, I'm like mm-hmm. trying to balance all of that. So there's definitely new challenges and I'm just trying to figure out like, how am I being too hyper aware or like, should I be just going full on like, da, da, da. Mm-hmm. so yeah, it's like you said, who knows when it will show up again or how it will show up yeah, and how you cope with it. So I probably do need to speak to my therapist about like, what's going on here? Like, is it my, <laughs> you know, is it my experience being so, wanting to control this now mm-hmm. you know what I mean I'm literally like am I trying to control the narrative my son is going to have around his body and his food and is that too yeah. much or am I putting you know safety precautions in place and doing great I have no idea because I've never done this before and it is yeah. completely unknown mm-hmm. my son could still have an eating disorder I don't know what's going to happen so mm-hmm. like calming or all of that down is definitely something and I, you know part of me feels jealous for people that don't have this experience in the sense of I'm I overthink everything about it uh-huh 100%. almost every meal time you know because I'm like oh gosh I don't want him to be forced to feel like he has to eat because I've I've remembered that mm-hmm. I don't want him to like hate 
hate healthy food or love too many sugary foods or like oh my gosh I'm just like it's a lot I can't I, I literally cannot imagine the stress that 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 would how stressful that would be um just some reassurance that I'm sure you you're doing amazing <laughs> and you're doing the best you can and sometimes you know like you could do all of this and the outcome could be different than what you expected like there's so much that's out of your control that's out of our control. And so I think just giving yourself some grace and some love and patience and just knowing that you're really, you're doing amazing and you're doing the best you can. And clearly you care a lot about your son um, because you are thinking about all these things. So that is also a very good sign. (laughs) I mean, I wish we could just eradicate it. it, You know, when you, when you are recovered, you feel like, gosh, this feels like it's something that as a society we could eradicate mm-hmm. if we put the right things in place I know we're very far off that yet so it's just like I just hope <laughs> that we can empower people who unfortunately do end up having an eating disorder or disordered eating or body dysmorphia or wherever they're at mm-hmm. to find the tools quicker yeah you know, we're not at the point where suddenly poof then ne- it's never going to exist so it's just mm-hmm. like what can we do to spread word and communicate and give people tools that are hopefully accessible you know and hopefully because I know treatment is still tricky for a lot of mm-hmm. people and insurance sucks yeah well we won't yeah. get into health insurance on yeah. <laughs> that is a whole nother episode about health insurance but um yeah yeah people to know they're not alone through this so mm-hmm. hopefully anyone listening to our talk today feels a little bit less alone yeah Yes, I hope so as well. And to kind of wrap things up, I just have one last question for you. And that is, um, like, what is your go-to when, when you're having those, those harder mental health days? Like, what is your go-to coping skill? Um, because, you know, it may be something that someone listening hasn't tried and they may try it and find that it really works for them. So I'm curious what that is for you. Yeah, so there's, again, I have to try multiple different ones sometimes. Sometimes mm-hmm. affirmations feel like they're just bouncing off and they're not sinking in. But I will try that as like my initial one because it feels like the quickest and easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. So if that's still like, I still feel not great, I will get outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's really important, just being out in nature. There's nothing like just like taking a walk, phone-free, device-free. It's just calms everything in my opinion moving that really really helps um there have been times recently you know I've been very overwhelmed with work and I've had to be like Philip I need you to take alpha I need to escape and work out and like put my favorite music on and like move my body and feel empowered and remember all the things that I'm capable of doing and all these amazing abilities that my body allows me to do and so that really really helps me too and then the last one is sleep like taking a nap getting some sleep it resets me I don't know about you but I feel like sleep was a big contributor to my struggles postpartum Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I had postpartum depression but I definitely know that I was struggling with feeling balanced Mm -hmm. um definitely didn't feel as like secure in who I was or what I had to offer I just felt like I was a mess I I kind of unfortunately took on that narrative 
in postpartum that I was just a mess, everything's a mess. Uh, and it took me a while to really kind of feel back to myself and put myself, all the new pieces, fit them into the old pieces and put myself back together. So yeah. nature walks were really important. Like I said, gratitude lists are really great too. Again, it takes you out of however you're feeling and just sit down for a moment and maybe it's just one thing and you're like, ah, that was a good muffin. Oh, <laughs> wow, I love when I can see a blue sky. Yeah. I don't know what it might be. Wow, I love my cat. I don't know what it might be, but that really can be a great tool, affirmations. And then doing something. And I know, you know, we talk about self-care isn't a bubble bath. It's much more than that. But is there something that brings you joy? Is it drawing you know, I've got plenty of coloring books that, again, I like to just sometimes do because it just takes you out of that moment and makes you feel creative, maybe accomplished. Mm -hmm. Like have some things like really check in with yourself. In the last 10 years, what are the things that have made me really happy or joyous doing? Maybe it's going to the cinema. Maybe it's just hanging out with your best friend and watching a Friends episode. I don't know mm -hmm. what it would be, but have those tool kit, you know, things that you can just bring out text a friend and say hey I'm feeling a bit shitty like tell me a joke mm -hmm. or you know bounce it off with a friend and say hey three things I'm grateful for you today and I think one thing that's great when you do have an accountability buddy or a partner like Philip's amazing as well is that when I say something kind to them and they bounce it back it's like a double whammy of goodness because I know I've made someone smile and like feel good and then they've helped me do it so it's like a double thing yeah. just mm -hmm. no I'm not alone and um, so that, those are my tools. So hopefully there's something in there that might resonate that you could try. Yeah, and that's a great variety. I think those are all really great, amazing ones for me. I relate so much to getting outside. I love to just feel the sunshine on my face. Um, I'm a sunshine girl. I can't ever live anywhere where the sun is not shining pretty much all year round. <laughs> so I, I definitely know now living in you know Texas I would never live in England again yeah yeah so yeah that's a big thing for me too I love turning on like a good song and dancing but that's such great tools so Iskra thank you so much for being here I am so thankful for this conversation and to be able to hear your story and your experience and to just engage in education and awareness around eating disorders um, so thank you so much for being here. I'll put all of your details in the show notes where people can find you, how they can support you, where they can follow you, all of that amazing stuff. Um, but thank you so much. Give yourself some extra love. You're an amazing mother. You're doing so much amazing stuff in this world. And I hope that you don't ever forget that. I won't. And same to you. And I'm very excited. I can't believe you're doing your master's. That's so much work, but it's going to be incredible yes. to do that. So I appreciate you. I can't wait to read the little syllabus that you're working on. <laughs> I'm sending you so much love. Thank you for Thank having you. me on. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.